I want to start today by going back to Peter's sermon, the first sermon in the Church of God in Acts 2. If we take a look at the situation in Acts, it says in verse 1 through 13, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? However, some of them made fun and said, well, they're just drunk. They've had too much wine. So the church is gathered together. As I mentioned, this is the first sermon in the church of God. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them with sound of wind and fire. The disciples are speaking all sorts of foreign languages. And people come out in the street to see what the ruckus is all about. And they hear the disciples prophesying. And they, they were prophesying about the kingdom of God and all kinds of other good stuff in their language. And uh, they get the wrong impression, though. They think, well, this is crazy. This is ruckus. This is weird stuff. They must be drunk. And uh, Peter gets up, and he gives them an explanation and kicks off this sermon. It says, you're wrong. These people, in verse 15, are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and their young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So Peter explains to them, he explains to them that this outpouring of God's spirit is what was prophesied in Joel 2. Joel 2, actually verses 28 through 32. It's characterized as an event that was to happen in the latter days. In the latter days. And Peter rephrases Joel's prophecy and speaks of what is happening that Pentecost day in 31 AD as these last final days. Verse 17. In the last days. Now since Peter made that proclamation, if you will, when he, he, he began that first message of the Church of God, 1,988 years have passed. It's been a long time. We've had a long time to reflect on what he said. <laughs> 1,988 years have come and gone, and now it's the year 2019. So how could Peter speak of his own time as these last or final days. How could he say something like that? Was he wrong? 
Was he misinterpreting scripture? Had he given in to um, having his own private interpretations of scripture? I mean, 1,988 years is a long way off. Was he just being overly optimistic about how much time was left until Christ returned? What was he getting at? Was he setting dates and getting it wrong? Well, my purpose today is to convince, persuade, remind, I think in some cases, I hope, that Peter, as he was inspired by the Spirit of God, was speaking of a final age, a final age that was beginning on that day, Pentecost 31 AD. It was the beginning of the final age of mankind and the final age before the return of Christ. I'm going to call this the age of the church. That's just my name for it. Uh, it's not something that is really derived from a direct scriptural reference or anything like that. I think, it's, uh, I think it makes sense. I think it's appropriate, but I'm going to call it the age of the church, or more specifically, the age of the church of God. Peter's quote from Joel tells us about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he goes through that portion of the prophecy, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is the phenomenon, if you will, the, um, the signature event, the happening that marked the beginning of the final age, the age of the church. And then the quote goes on, and, and Peter continues reading from Joel. In verse 19, it tells about some events and phenomenon which will mark the end of the age of the church of God. Uh, let's read those. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These events that are being talked about here, quoted by Peter, originally prophesied in Joel, should, I believe, be recognized as the sixth and the seventh seals. If you're familiar with Revelation, we've gone through that in the past. But there are seven seals, and the last two are the sixth and the seventh. The sixth seal, which you can read about if you want to in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14, are signs in the heavens, which is what Joel talks about. The seventh seal is the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ, which is also mentioned here in verse 20. So the age of the church, this age of the church, which began that day, is bracketed in. It's bracketed in by the outpouring of God's spirit and the mighty works of the church at the beginning. And at its end, by the signs in the heavens that signal and immediately precede the return of Christ. And that's kind of how I think we could bracket off the age of the church, or the era of the church, however, whatever word you like, epoch. <laughs> so you could say that between verses 18 and 19 there, in Acts 2, there's a very long gap, the second gap theory, if you will. <laughs> there's a long gap there of about 
2,000 years. All right? Uh, all we know is that it's 1,988 so far. <laughs> but I think there's more to come. If you go to verse 40, Luke kind of wraps up this. He's given sort of an um, overview of what Peter spoke about that day. And then in, in verse 40, he summarizes it with this. With many other words, he, that's Peter, warned them, and he pleaded with them. And what did he say? Save yourselves. Save yourselves from this corrupt, wicked generation. That's Luke's summary. Be saved from this perverse generation. And that same warning stands for us today. We have that same warning before us today. Knowing all this, all right, knowing all this, come out and be separate. That's the message of prophecy. That's the message of looking at end times. That's the message of trying to get a, a bead on where you might be in history and what's happening in the world and where are we so that you are motivated, inspired. We've spent the past couple of months kind of looking at very nuts and bolts issues, fruits of the spirit, Bible study, things like that. Today's message is more motivational, and the, the keynote for that motivation is save yourselves from a perverse and crooked generation. That's the reality of the church and the reality of your life. Now, at the, at the time there, when this first sermon was delivered by Peter, the Jews were expecting a special outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. That's, that's what they were looking forward to. Uh, they, were, they were doing this based on scriptures uh, such as Ezekiel 37, for example, um, which speaks of the outpouring of God's Spirit on resurrected Israel. But what they heard from Peter, what they heard from Peter that day was very different from what they were all expecting. Peter doesn't quote from Ezekiel 37 for one thing. He quotes from Joel 2. He talks about this same outpouring of God's spirit. But an outpouring that is for all people, on all flesh, all humanity. That's not what they were expecting. Now the focus of God's work in this final age, which we're still in, we're in this final age, you know, it would no longer be funneled through Israel. God had worked through Israel, but that was coming to a close. The Spirit of God would go out to all people, all tribes, all nations, and uh, people would also have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, the new and perfect high priest. So the times they were a-changing. However, God would continue to work through a body of people, no longer a nation like Israel, the responsibility of representing God to the nations would pass to the church, the church of God. That responsibility left Israel and came to the church of God. The church is very important in God's plan. Now, the end of one age, or the beginning of one age, is the end of another. 
That's how it works, a transition from one to the other. Go to Exodus 19, if you would. Learning a little bit about Israel and their purpose also gives us a great deal of insight into our own purpose and the purpose that we have collectively as the church of God. Uh, we have our own lives, our own walk with God, but we also have a collective purpose, stuff we do together. Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, speaking through Moses, God tells Israel some important stuff. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean they get to wear cool clothes? Well, to be a kingdom of priests, an entire nation of priests, a priest is one who um, intercedes or interacts with God on behalf of people. At that time, it was so that they could uh, go through all the rites of cleanness and, and sacrifice that were necessary. But Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests to demonstrate the worship of God to others. That was part of their role. How is God to be worshipped? And they were also to demonstrate the process, if you will, of cleansing away of sin, which is required to come into his presence. Those things are still necessary. They're administered differently now through the new covenant. And we've gone through that together again. Those needs are still there. Someone, some group to demonstrate the worship of God, how God is to be worshipped, and the cleansing away of sin. We're in Exodus. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. Again, speaking to Israel through Moses, God says to them, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Israel had another purpose. They were a living example of obedience to God's laws and commandments, uh, which was meant to attract the attention of the nations around them. And that purpose is still part of reality on planet Earth. It's still part of God's plan. And like I said, we know these things, they are recorded for us today because that responsibility has been handed over to the church of God. Well, God entered into a covenant. He entered into a covenant with Israel at Sinai. They agreed to keep his commandments, and he agreed to be their God. And uh, he would lead them and take care of them, 
number of other things. And the covenant also included uh, terms of punishment. Let's go to, uh, we're in Deuteronomy 4, let's go to verse 25. He warns them. He says to them, after you, Israel, have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the people, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. That also stands. <laughs> I'm not going to dwell on that a lot, but it also stands for the church today. We need to think about that. With Israel, alas, uh, that's exactly what happened. They, uh, they failed. Yeah, they had a mission, and they failed. Their history is a long, tragic story. Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, Israel failed. After the giving of the commandments, uh, we get what I'm going to call a somewhat wistful comment from God, the God who gave them the commandments, a wistful, uh, you know, kind of thinking, ah, if only. Verse 29 says, ah, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God was being wistful. Ah, if only, if only it would work out so simply as me giving them these laws, they follow the laws and everything goes beautifully for them. But there was a missing ingredient. There was a missing ingredient. It says... Oh, that their hearts would be inclined. The heart here is the spirit. Something's not there. Something's missing. There's a missing ingredient. If only it would work out. But their hearts are not in it. That missing ingredient is the Holy Spirit. And without help from the Holy Spirit, without the presence of God's Spirit in them, Israel could not live up to the fullness of God's purpose for them. Just having access to truth. They had the laws, they were laid out before them, they were proclaimed probably on a you know, regular basis. They had access to the information. That was not enough. Because human beings need more. They need more than information. They need conviction. They need to be committed. And they need to have courage to follow through on these things. To do the things that God's law instructs. And to change the way they live. The Holy Spirit provides 
that deep level of help that was missing with Israel. Go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah uh, was teaching, preaching toward the end of Israel's time as a nation. He had a depressing job, in my opinion, but he did it. And in Jeremiah 31, he talks a little bit about the missing ingredient and what was to come, all right? Um, verse 31. This, of course, is looking forward to the new covenant. It says in verse 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This next phase of God's plan, the age of the church, would include this missing ingredient. The new covenant has not yet been applied to Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, but it has been applied to the church, the church of God, who are also the prophesied remnant of Israel and the Israel of God. Again, another subject that we've gone through at other times. With the historic appearance of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the period of God's showing himself and his law through the physical descendants of Abraham, who were also known as Israel, was coming to a close. That's the end of the age that I mentioned a little bit earlier. And his death at Passover in 31 AD marked the end. Marked the end. The instrument through which God would now work would be the church. This uh, age of the church will be the final and the last age before the return of Jesus Christ. And so this is how Peter could speak of what was happening on that day in 31 AD as the last days, these last days, as he said. He wasn't getting it wrong. He was just talking about a much bigger scope, an age, final age. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Paul, writing about Israel's history, kind of going through some of the same sort of stuff that we're talking about right now, uh, says in verse 11, these things happened all this Israel history stuff that he's been going through, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Or the final age has come. Paul speaks of this final age which has come and the underlying words there, I had to get some Greek words in somehow, you know that, right? Are teleos eon. 
right? Teleos meaning the end or the, the terminal point, the final end. And aeon, A-I-O-N, means age or period of time. And uh, scripture then goes on to warn us, those of us who read about Israel today, you know, Israel were called to serve God's purpose in the previous age. They failed. They drifted into temptation, idolatry, and all sorts of vile practices and so forth. And we're warned about that. Not to fail our mission. We're warned to be careful, lest the same things happen to us. If you read verses 6 through 4, you, you get the, the gist of that. Um, and again, knowing these things, our takeaway should be save yourselves from a perverse and corrupt generation. And be careful. Be careful out there. All right, let's, let's apply a little history to this, okay? Not a lot, not a lot, but a little. You've got this chart. I gave you all this chart. I hope you can see it and read it. Uh, on this chart you see, I guess it's sort of my, my take on human history. Um, I've seen things like this before. I know I'm not the only person who's, who's thought these thoughts. Uh, but this is kind of a, a timeline of human history that is very simplified. <laughs> a lot of detail left out. Uh, focusing on the ages. And you'll see that it's divided into four different ages. All right? And in the very middle of the chart, right there, bing, the very middle of the chart, you see a transition, a transition from the age of Israel, then there's a transition to the age of the church. Age of Israel's another one of those, I made up that label for that, but I think it's apropos. And that transition is marked by the date Pentecost, 31 AD. Pentecost, 31 AD. The uh, age that preceded it, the age of Israel, lasted about 2,000 years. And I'll give you a little bit more detail on that. Um, the age of Israel began with the calling out of Abraham. And I think can be marked with the birth of Jacob, 2006 BC. Why do I say that? Well, Jacob is the man who was given a new name. What was that new name? Israel. All right. So, I'm supposing a little bit. I know that. But Jacob was born probably about 2006 BC. He was to be named Israel. And then approximately 2,000 years later, Jesus is born, 4 BC. And then he later dies in 31 AD. So as I mentioned, this age, um, this age of Israel, is actually an age that comes even before that. Uh, there's an age that comes before Israel, and it also appears to be about 2,000 years long. Um, Without going into a lot of detail on that, some of you might have heard this, but if you take the Bible's internal chronology, the, you know, the, the begats and the, the begettles and the ages, the internal chronology indicates that Adam came on the scene 
about 4004 BC. That's about 2,000 years before Jacob, or Israel, who is later named Israel. Now I'm going to call this first age, the age of violence, or the age of lawlessness it could also be called, after uh, the experience in Eden. Humanity was cut off from God. They were kicked out, boom, and they were cut off from God. They didn't have access to God. Then, with the uh, transition there to the age of Israel, beginning with the family of Abraham, God would reintroduce himself to humanity, beginning with Abraham, and then working through Israel. He would reintroduce his law, and through the priesthood provide a temporary means for human beings to approach the most holy God. Now I think it's interesting that these first two ages are about 2,000 years long. Now, if that's any indication of how long the age of the church is, then a timeline like this would place us very near here. Now, if you've, if, if you've gone to a mall and uh, you, know, you want to know where you are, you want to know where the nearest Starbucks is or whatever, you go to one of those kiosks, right, and they have a map, and it has a little red dot on it when you're standing in front of the kiosk, and it says, you are here. So you might want to take this chart. You don't have to, but you might want to take this chart and draw a little circle right around there next to the end of the church age and say, you are here. You are here. Where are we in the timeline of human history? So if the previous ages and their length is any indication of how long the present church age might be, a timeline would place us near the end of this church age that we're in. We know for a fact that it's been 1,988 years since that day of Pentecost when the church began. Okay, that we know. At the close of the church age, then, there's another transition, and uh, we will see the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, the heavenly signs. And these mark the transition from the church age, which comes to an end, to the age of Christ's 1,000-year rule on earth. Now, the Church of God, United Church of God, believes and teaches that we are living towards the end of time. Or, let's not put it that way. We are living toward the end of the current age. The end times, if you will. And are very close to the return of Christ. We base this on, not on this chart. Okay, no, this is, this is just me showing you some interesting things. Uh, we base that on a number of other signs of the times. Uh, we have a several uh, Beyond Today programs on that, the seven things that need to happen before Christ returns, etc. Um, and those are good to keep in your mind. But that's basically what the, the church's approach is. That's what we think. We're close to the end. We, don't, uh, we, make, we try to make a really good point of not putting dates on the table. So this chart is not intended to predict a date or... Um, anything specific like that, but it is, uh, I guess what I'm going to say is, I'm taking this information, 
putting it out there for you to look at and think about. That's it. And you can, uh, you can think about it. But I think that it is also um, motivating to think about, well, God does have a plan, and it, there are ages, and things are going to change, and there's going to be a transition. Things just don't continue going on forever the way they are. Things change. I mentioned earlier that the, the church has taken on the role of God's representative or representatives. I believe representative is better because we are we represent God as a, as a collective, as a group who work together. So we have the church, and it began Pentecost, and that was the beginning of a new age, the age of the church of God, and the age of Israel was over, and it had lasted about 2,000 years. New age begins. Church takes on the role to serve as God's representatives, the role that was originally held by Israel. And so by knowing a bit about Israel and what they were supposed to do, we learn a little bit about what we're supposed to be doing, although there's a, there's a different twist to it. Now let's go to Romans 2. Speaking of the church kind of moving into the, <laughs> moving into the role that Israel previously held, Romans 2, verse 17. We'll read through verse 29. It says, now you, uh, not speaking to the church per se, but speaking to everybody, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision, this, this circumcision, the physical mark that kind of uh, was very visible and separated the nation of Israel from others, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you were not circumcised or had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the law written, or sorry, the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. Key verse here. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. And such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Take away. Faith unto obedience is what makes a person a Jew or Israelite. Uh, let's go to Romans 9. Faith unto obedience is what makes a person the representative of God, if you will. Romans 9, verse 23. 
What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he had prepared in advance for glory? Even though, even us, sorry, whom he also called, and speaking of the church here, not only from the Jews, there were some Jews who became part of the church, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my, my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So the church moves into this role of God's people. They are the prophesied remnant of Israel. They are, the, the church are the people of God. Those who were formerly said, you're not my people, are now the people of God. Let's read verse 27, 29. Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, saying, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become like Sodom and we would become like Gomorrah, the remnant of Israel. That's the church. Go to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that had brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's talking about the righteousness and the promise of eternal life that comes from the Holy Spirit. Again, that missing ingredient. It's been added in the age of the church. 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2. Let's read... Verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, speaking to the church, the living stone, rejected by humans, rejected by others, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This, of course, harkens back to what Israel were given to do, how they were to represent God to the people around them. This responsibility is now upon the church of God. 
For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So others reject it. And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Israel's final undoing was their rejection of Jesus Christ when he came to visit them. Their king was among them. They rejected him. They stumbled on a stone that was Jesus, tripped over it, and fell flat on their faces. They stumbled because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, think about this. But you, speaking to the church, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So all that terminology there used to be applied to Israel. Now it's applied to the church of God. So there's been a changing of the guard, if you will. It says, goes on in verse 10 to say, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, and here we get back to that call to action, going back to the very beginning, save yourselves. Peter, speaking again here, he says, Dear friends, knowing all this, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, people who see themselves that way as foreigners and exiles in a strange land with strange gods and strange customs, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day he visits us. So the church is the holy nation that has this central role in this final age, the final age that you see on that little chart that I gave you. But it will come to an end. The mission of the church, one more scripture, and this will dig into the mission of the church, Matthew 28, verse 18. If you have a red letter Bible, this will be red letters. So this is Jesus kind of giving marching orders to the church, these people who have this role in the age of the church, these final days, the final age. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore go, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Israel's purpose in their age was to be an example nation that would attract positive attention to God to his laws, 
the blessings of his presence, the benefits of worship and of his love, the process of atonement for sin, and the way to reconcile. The church's mission, when you, when you take it to those, you know, those words, is the same. The way it's administered, different. We've talked about that at different times, a different covenant. But the church's mission and purpose is the same. The approach is different. With the beginning of the age of the church, there's a larger scale outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You've been blessed with that. There's an openness to all people through faith that leads to obedience. And this New Age singles uh, what I will call a more proactive approach. Israel was a little more passive. They kind of stayed within their borders and, and they did their thing and people would look at them and, and wonder and say, yeah, cool. Instead of merely serving as an example, like Israel, the church is told to go, right? We read that in Matthew 28. It says, go, <laughs> go out and do something. Well, the church is called to go out and make disciples. And so that's what we do as a group when we work together, when we pool our resources together. One of the things that we do is go out and we make disciples. That's why we spend so much money <laughs> doing stuff like that. That's why we have a, a you know, the, the Beyond Today, the magazine, the TV program, all the other stuff we do, the website. That's why we do that. To make disciples. And we do that because people like you work together with other people and make it happen. Go forth and we do this. The church is also called or told to go and call people to repent and obey. Obey all things that I've commanded. And so the church teaches people the truth of God. We teach obedience. We teach people to follow God. Do what he says. Don't just dance around and wave your arms and talk about him. Go out and do what he says. We're called to baptize with the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the church, but the church as a whole, I believe, is involved in this administration of the Holy Spirit to humanity. We provide instruction in law. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. We do that. Sabbath services provide that sort of instruction for people. That's, that's what we do. Every week we put on a show, if you will, teaching God's law. We are to preach the coming kingdom, the rule of God on earth, the return of Christ, the millennium, the thousand years. We carry forward the message of the prophets. That's what we do as a group, as a collective, working together. And we achieve way more than we would on our own. We do these things together. The church, the assembly of God, the people who are gathered and called to work on, these, on this great project, we're also called to love one another. And in that way, fulfill the royal law of Leviticus. It's always been there. We're called to live righteously as an example, and for the, you know, for the example to others, but also for the transformation of our own hearts and our minds unto the fullness that is Christ to serve God's eternal purpose. 
so we can be part of the family of God. So knowing all these things, age of the church, age of Israel, the age yet to come, knowing all these things, save yourself. Save yourself from a wicked and a perverse generation.